The Do You Mind.life project is intended to empower and connect women by engaging them in heart-centered conversations. In a time when we too often minimize, apologize, or ask for permission, Do You Mind.life seeks to help women own our choices, claim our voices, and rise into the fullness of who we are. The Do You Mind podcasts are conversations with women who create, innovate, and make a difference in their communities and in our world. Welcome. I'm Stacy Lee, and this is the Do You Mind podcast. Today, I am thrilled to be able to welcome Ellen Stackable. Ellen is the executive director of Poetic Justice, an organization that teaches creative writing to incarcerated women. Ellen taught English and writing for over 18 years at Tulsa School of Arts and Sciences, and she has her BSE from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. While pursuing her master's degree in liberal studies at the University of Oklahoma, she became aware of the issue of mass incarceration of women in Oklahoma. As a writing teacher, she knew the power of writing to transform lives, so she wanted to teach writing to incarcerated women. In March of 2014, she helped start Poetic Justice, working with incarcerated women at the Tulsa County Jail. Poetic Justice classes give a voice to the voiceless and empowers women to change as they engage in self-reflective, therapeutic writing. Poetic Justice now has 60 volunteers who teach classes to incarcerated women every week at the Tulsa County Jail, at every women's prison in Oklahoma, a rehab unit in Tijuana, Mexico, and at the San Diego County Jail. This last year, Poetic Justice held a day-long workshop on empathy called The Human Factor that all wardens, deputy wardens, and chief guards were required to attend. Ellen was honored with the 2015 YWCA Women of the Year Pinnacle Award. In addition, she was a Tulsa CC TEDx speaker in 2017 with the theme Unlocking the Voices of Incarcerated Women. She won the Tulsa Metropolitan Ministries Point of Light Award, the Dan Allen Center for Social Justice Outstanding Project Award, and the University of Oklahoma Social Justice Activist in Residence. And Ellen was a top 10 finalist for the CNN Hero Award in 2018. Ellen, your list of accomplishments is absolutely amazing, and I'm so, so happy that we finally had a chance to coordinate our schedules and sit down and have a conversation. Welcome. Thanks. Me too. (laughs) So first of all, I've known you since uh, my daughter's actually had you as her teacher. Yeah, since freshman year. So that was four years ago, and because they've just graduated, and... um, I knew you as a phenomenal teacher in the classroom, <laughs> wonderful teacher in the classroom, but at that time had no idea that you were doing all of this other social justice work. And it was just starting, actually. I mean, so this is, we're uh, going into our fifth year now. Oh, so okay. it was almost, you know, we started just, the, I think, that uh, spring before your daughters came to school. So. The, the program, of course, is to give a voice, and our theme this month, Ellen, Do You Mind, right. is voice. But um, the program is to give a voice to women who are incarcerated. I wanted to start just by talking about Oklahoma's rate of incarceration of women and just give our listening audience a little bit of background. Well, I think a lot of people know this now. When I first started exploring this, not many people knew it, but we um, incarcerate women at the highest rate in our country and at the highest rate in the world. So that means per capita, we have the highest incarceration rate of women. And 
as far as how that breaks down in terms of demographics, we incarcerate um, African-American women at double the rate and Native American women at triple the rate. Wow. So, and what you wow. see, um, Oklahoma has, there, there's a book that Dr. Susan Sharp at the University of Oklahoma wrote. Uh, she's a sociologist there, and actually I read that book, and that's when I first started realizing I wanted to do this. And it's called Mean Laws, Mean Lives. Mean Laws, Mean Lives. Uh-huh, mm -hmm. and it's about uh, gender disparity and how laws are enforced in Oklahoma. Yeah. And particularly, yeah. you know, I, and I see a lot of this anecdotally as I'm working in the prisons, and then when I start to look up the statistics on it, it's always what I've seen anecdotally is proven out. And what I see is a lot of women from small towns in Oklahoma that receive harsher sentences than men for that same sentence. Yeah. And then we also have a, a well, one law in particular that is almost never applied to men, and that is the failure to protect law. Failure and, to protect their children? Yes, and okay. where that comes into play is almost exclusively in um, domestic violence. Yeah. So a woman is threatened, she's choked, uh, she's in fear of her life, and then her partner or her boyfriend or her husband starts to abuse the children as well, you know, and hurt them. And she's afraid to report it because she fears for her life. Well, she gets a sentence of failure to protect um, and that is a violent crime. We also have a really high rate of violent crimes in Oklahoma. In violent crimes, you have to serve 85% of your sentence. Mandatory. Mandatory. Yeah. And so what I see, you know, with the women is women who clearly love their children. And yet I look at their cases and it says failure to protect or child abuse. And those are often tacked onto their charges. You know, I've seen, you know, where let's say that the boyfriend has a meth lab going on in the house and he gets busted. He gets charged with um, possession with intent to distribute. And she gets charged probably with possession plus child abuse. Oh. Because there's kids in the home. Right. And it's not a healthy place for kids. I'm not saying that it is. What I'm saying is he doesn't get charged with child abuse. So then he can make parole much quicker than she can. Right. And meanwhile, the children are in DHS custody. Yes. And yes. having to, yeah. Yes, unless somehow unless, you get them with relatives. Yeah. And, you know, it just wreaks havoc um, on Generational. Just generational. generational. Yeah. yeah. So women are incarcerated at a much higher rate for the same crimes as men, and women of color even more so. Yes, and Native American wow. women even more so. Yeah. And increasingly, we're seeing more and more uh, Latina women, too. Uh, where where I of go course. every Tuesday yeah. is the medium to max facility, and there's usually anywhere between 1,200 to 1,400 women there. And then we have other ones. We have a minimum to medium. That's Eddie Warrior outside of Tulsa. And we have a minimum, which is Kate Bernard, in uh, Oklahoma City. So you said you first became aware of Oklahoma's incarceration rate some time ago then. Yeah, it was probably, I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago. Okay. And I started looking for a way in to work with incarcerated women. And okay. it was a labyrinth. I mean, I really had no idea what I was doing or where <laughs> to go or who to ask. And um, I actually was on, I was teaching at TCC part-time. Tulsa Community College. Yeah. 
and I was doing uh, kind of their developmental writing and reading classes. And one summer they were going to go to a men's facility. They teach at, uh, offer classes, I think it's at Dick Connors. Okay. And so I signed on to do that, but then the prison ended up in lockdown that whole summer, so my class was oh. canceled. So that kind of X that out. And then I was, uh, one of my colleagues that I worked with at uh, Tulsa School of Arts and Sciences, he actually moonlights as a hip-hop slash spoken word artist. Oh, okay. Yeah, Dan Hahn. Did you know oh, that? Yeah, I yeah. did not know that. Okay. So, yeah, he goes as algebra. So he told me one day, he knew I was interested in working with incarcerated women, and he said, hey, we're doing this thing, a bunch of us at the Tulsa County Jail with men that spoken word poetry, you want to come? So I came one night, and I said, is anybody doing it with the women? And no one was. No. <laughs> and so he suggested I contact uh, another woman who was helping with the men's class was Claire Collins, who was at that time lived in Tulsa and was a spoken word artist. So she and I got somehow okayed, and we started the next week with women. And I think that first year we really, it was more reflective of spoken word. Um, and then, and, and, and Claire was with us the first year, and then she moved away after that. But we moved more and more towards uh, therapeutic and restorative writing. And, you know, I've thought about it a lot. You know, what's the difference between spoken word and what we do now? And I think of spoken word as almost like, when, especially when I see kids do it, because I actually coached a spoken word team at our high school for a while. Mm -hmm. And I think of kids as being almost like, or people who are incarcerated, as like uh, soda cans that are shook up. Right. And they're waiting to explode. Uh, because there's just so much they're trying to process about their lives, about uh, trauma or, or, you know, need to express things. And then you pop open the can and it's like, bam, it all comes out at once. Yeah. And I, I, I think spoken word reminds me of that. It's kind of yeah. an unleashing or a letting go of. Yeah. And it's very cathartic in the moment. But I more and more felt like we needed to help women find tools long term to deal with the deep, deep trauma in their lives. Yeah. You know, and, and that isn't done by a one-off poem. No. That takes a work no. of introspection and deliberation and courage, honestly, to go that deep. Yeah, and so when does. we started, you know, we were looking for a way to go to the prisons as well, and really that was an amazing deal that we finally got into Mabel Bassett. Um, but early on we decided almost every volunteer program that I've seen, not all of them, but most of them, the vast majority are faith-based. And so we right. chose early on not to be faith-based. You know, we have a lot of our volunteers are women of faith, but we wanted them to be able to process their life in an open, safe environment without any kind of sense of, I've got to make this sound like I'm a changed person. Right. I have to put the religious uh, verbiage on to make it sound right. Right. So, and and I'm really right. glad we did that. Well, yeah, because that includes everybody. Mm -hmm. Everyone can be mm -hmm. welcome regardless of their faith or no faith, but they can they can show up as their whole self and not feel like they're yes. being judged for whatever beliefs they're bringing in. Well, and I think also, you know, you see an awful lot of women who, when they go to prison, really do have a profound faith experience. Mm. But for it to be a life-changing, long-term one, they can't just deal with who they are in this moment. Right. 
they have to be willing to go backwards and find right. out the rootedness of it. And right. one of the things we started doing um, about two years ago, we do entrance and exit surveys. And I just felt like they weren't capturing exactly what we needed. So we worked with um, Dr. Chan Hellman at the University of Oklahoma. He has the uh, Hope Research Center. And okay. he came up with a different way to evaluate actually hope and agency and positive changes with the women. So when they enter our class, they take the Adverse Childhood Experience Test. Okay. And that's 10 questions, um, and it's based on the ages of 0 to 18, and they're really, really profoundly uh, difficult things that you would have experienced. So it's not mm -hmm. just like, oh, you know, I didn't have lunch one day, or my parents were separated. It's things like... I had a parent in prison or a parent who struggled with addiction or I didn't know where food was going to come from. Right. And so and I'm going to I want to interject right here. Oklahoma is also one of the most food insecure states in the nation yes. as well. We one depending on statistics is one in 4 or one in 5 oh, children yeah. suffers from food insecurity. So they've been doing a lot of studies and if you have a score of 2 even 2 out of 10 of these factors growing up it has not only psychological effects on you as an adult, but physiological health oh, yeah. effects. Yeah. So what we found is that women in prison have a score of somewhere around 6 out of 10 to 10 out of 10. Six. So that means right. you can't just do the work in who you are right now. No, you've got you to go back. You have to be able to go back. And I don't, I don't think that happens by being prescriptive. I think it happens by giving people tools and then they choose how and when to do that yeah. and providing a safe space for it to happen. Yeah. So what we, I mean, it's, it's really amazing in the class. Our volunteers, even our volunteers who are not people of faith, call it a sacred space. And that's because in the middle of prison, somehow every single week, week after week, prison after prison, we make a safe place for the women to write and share their writing. So... And I want to talk about the writing, but I want first to just think about that experience as contrasted to what prison is designed to do. Yeah. Prison is not designed yeah. to help people be introspective. Mm -hmm. It is not a place for rehabilitation. It's, it's not really intended to rehabilitate. It's just meant to keep people separated from society. And, and punish. And punish them. It's punitive. It's dehumanizing. Yeah. Very much so. It strips from the very moment that they enter into a prison setting. They're completely stripped of their personhood. Yeah. And they, they yes, they, they're given a six-digit number. Yeah. And one of, one of my dear friends who's in prison right now uh, commented once that you're not only stripped of your personhood, you're stripped of your gender. You don't even feel like a woman when you're there. Yeah. 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 So for a woman to come into your classroom and to be made to feel safe and to know that this is a safe container where she's been re-traumatized, I'm sure, through the prison process itself, mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you even set up a safe environment? Well, so we have our basis. Um, there was a um, Brazilian sociologist named Paulo Freire. Mm -hmm. And he wrote this very intense book called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And he talks a lot about how do people move from being an oppressed people to a free people, and how do you avoid them becoming the new oppressors. Right. And so he talks a lot about the power of voice 
and not only the voice of the oppressed but even as we treat people you know it's kind of a, a a destruction of hierarchy so the first thing that women do when they come into our class is we don't have a hierarchy and their whole lives have been full of that and they've always been at the bottom right. as children uh-huh. as adults and now when they're in prison they're always on the bottom so we and they walk in you know we greet them with you know we tell them our names who we are and that doesn't even always happen in prison um and then we ask them to make the rules for the class to make it a safe place fabulous and it's not gratuitous we mean it yeah and at first the first time i we did this in a class at mayo bassett the women didn't believe us but these are the rules you live by as well as right. everybody yeah right and you know so one yeah. of the rules i you know one day i said well, what happens if i break a rule and so they decided i had to bring everyone a pen next week if i <laughs> okay. broke a rule and sure enough i did break a rule because <laughs> one of the rules they make which has been a really hard one for me to get used to but now i understand it is no rescuing and the idea oh, is yeah. if someone's reading their poem reading what they wrote and they start weeping you are not allowed to go over there and give them a hug or even give them a tissue, yeah. Or say it's all right, it's all right. Yeah. And you know, it was really hard. And I finally said, "Why, why are you guys doing this?" And they said, "Well, it takes agency away from us. Yeah, exactly. it's much more powerful if we take the moment, and if we ask for Kleenex, that's okay. Sure. And it, it works. Um, sure. You know that it becomes a safe place, and then when they write, we write too. Um, we share our, what we've written too. Uh, there is a conspiracy of silence in prison too, of not really ever showing vulnerability or really talking about things because there's so many dysfunctional relationships, particularly among women in prison. Yeah. Um, codependency and all these different things. So they often find out that their story isn't unique when they read it. Right. Or I often right. hear, I've never written about this before. I've never told anyone this before. You know, I even had a woman one time say, I just need all you guys to promise you won't say anything if I read this out loud to anyone. And everyone promised. And even... That's... Wow. Yeah. Wow. That doesn't even happen. And I think it's hard... I think it's hard sometimes for correctional officers to understand the power of what we do because they're so used to seeing prisoners in a different way, you know. Right. They're the guard. You're the prisoner. Don't you ever forget it. And any and other groups that come in have a hard time understanding what yeah. we're doing. But I'm sure for for prison staff, they feel like they have to maintain that hierarchy because otherwise, yeah, they, they fear chaos. You know, and just as in a classroom, the, the teacher is still the teacher and needs to maintain that. And yet the teacher can also, a really, a really skilled teacher can be extremely collegial with students. Right. Because there's mutual respect. Right, exactly. When I do yeah. see that with some correctional officers, when, when you treat human beings as human beings, when you treat human beings as people of worth, they respond back in that way. Yeah. And it does, you know, we've never had a problem where we felt unsafe in any of our classes anywhere. And I just think that's remarkable because we have been in all kinds of 
prisons and jails. You know, when we do our classes at the Tulsa County Jail, we're in a little utility room <laughs> right in the pod. Okay. And it's maybe 12 feet by 12 feet. I don't know. It's not very big. And they all bring in their plastic chairs, and we sit in a circle there. And then it has um, a door that slams shut, and it's got a big old uh, window out into the open pod that's got a metal pull-down shade, but you can't pull it down. It has to be open the whole time. So okay. whatever's going on in the pod, we hear during the class. And we've had times when a fight breaks out in the pod, uh, when people are coming off of drugs and kind of losing it, and but never nothing in our class. And the women go on. I mean, yeah. the time there was a, a fight out in the pod, a guard rushed in and pepper sprayed the pod, and our class just kept going. The women said, oh, no, wow. we want to keep going. And what wow. we hear from correctional officers is, is it changes the atmosphere of the whole pod when we come in. You know, there's just more peace. Um, the women are um, more able to process things. And we really orient our classes, um, depending on the facility, with the needs of the women there. In, in county, it's like a, a triage that we're trying to do with trauma. Mm -hmm. They don't know if they're going to be released. They don't know if they're going to go to trial. Right. They don't know if they're going to sit there for two years. Right. And there's they can be in the county jail for two years before they... We just had one of our students that just got transferred to Mabel, and she was in county for two years. M Mabel is... Minimum. Mabel Bassett is a, a medium to maximum medium. Okay. prison. Yeah, she was arrested right when she turned 18, and she just turned 20. And I saw her mm -hmm. last week at Mabel Bassett, just got there. And I just saw her over the course of those two years. She'd have... She's just an incredibly charismatic, funny... Um, kind of a leader type person. I saw her, you know, there'd be times when she was doing great and then there'd be times where she was just struggling to even maintain because she'd been there for so long. And, and you don't go outside when you're there. At all? No, they have, their outdoor rec room is actually four concrete walls and about 30 feet up is a metal grid and that's the outdoors. Oh. So no sunlight even? Sometimes during the day they can get some there, um, not much. And so sensory deprivation, oh, you know, is really That would make a me real insane. I, mean, I would actually seriously be yeah. insane if, if I didn't have sunshine. Like, yeah. I can't even imagine someone being deprived of real sunshine, real sky, trees, Colors. trees, grass, yeah. yeah. Smells. Oh yeah, well you probably get you get a lot of institutional smells, right? But no, nothing of nature. No, no, you really don't. No and it's it's interesting because if after the women at Mabel Bassett, most of them have been there a long time. <laughs> one day when I came in, they one of them came over to me and said, um, "What what kind of perfume do you have on?" I said, "I don't have any perfume. I don't wear perfume." And she said, "You know, when we've been here long enough, we can smell your hair product." Your lotion, oh. the sh whatever you used on your uh, to wash your clothes, and we can tell if you have dogs. Really? Yeah, and sometimes yeah. even guess the type of dog based on if they see dog hair on you. So you know, when we go in, we're very intentional about everything we do, but scripted not at all. Right. 
And that intention, I mean, it's really summed up in, you know, how we end every class is we all join hands and we say, uh, they repeat each time louder and louder, and you're not allowed to yell in jail or prison. So we yell um, because it's (laughs) part of the class. And it's, I have a voice, I have hope, I have the power to change. I have a voice, I have have hope, hope, I am changing. And then I have a voice, I have hope, I am changing the world. That gave me chills. It it gives me chills. And I'd say that everything we do is related to those three things. It's it's voice, hope, and change. All right. So let's let's talk about each one of those. So (laughs) so voice, you're giving women the the tools that they need to be able to write poetry. But it's a lot more than that, of course. Yeah, so they we collect their poems after they write them. Okay. And we say, is this something you want to print, or is this something that's private? And we give them that option. Because mm. um, sometimes there's something they'll share, particularly when we do closure letters. It's mm-hmm. really intense. That's when they write uh, a closure letter to someone they didn't get an opportunity to say goodbye to. Because mm. one of the things I didn't realize until I started working with women is grief is a privilege they don't have. And I didn't realize that till my mom passed away this past year. And I didn't go back to school right away, but I went to Mabel Bass at the prison where I work. It was a week after on a Tuesday night. And when I got there, all the women that I had known from the very beginning there were in the yard waiting for me because they knew that my mom had passed away. And I realized none of them had had the opportunity to grieve, uh, to say goodbye. So the closure letters are really intense, and they usually don't want to publish those. Um, So we take all those poems, we type them up during the week, and then the last class at graduation, we have bound them into an anthology. And they get to pick the cover of the anthology and the title of the anthology. And we give them a graduation certificate and the anthologies and say, now you're published poets. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, some, is that the same anthology then that has been available at Magic City Books? No, those that's, are that's the best of the best, the best that we oh, collect are, every year. And you have how many volumes? I've got volumes uh, one, two, and three, I think. Four. We have there four. four so this year will be our fifth. Oh, wow. And this All year's right. going to have art in it, too. Oh, terrific. Yeah. I, I would put in wow. voice, too, is that we always ask them, do we have permission to publish your works, you know, to either put them on Facebook or Instagram, or in our yearly anthology, and they always say yes. And what they tell us is that anyone can look up our name anyway and see what we're charged with. That's not who we are. That's not all of who we are. Of course. We want someone to see something else. And they also feel like if one person is seen in the world, they're all seen. Yeah. And I think that leads to hope. You know, they have hope that they're not forgotten. Hope that change can come in the world. Hope yeah. that maybe even, you know, they will have their sentence commuted. Or hope that when they leave, even if they do their full sentence, hope when they leave that they won't be the same person. Well, and you and I talked about hope some months ago. And you were saying that a lot of the women know that they're probably never going to leave. Yeah. And and some of the programs that will come into prison want them to think about what it will be like after. Right. right. And I think that hope in something in the future must be devastating to these women. 
Yeah, I think it actually is devastating it is. to those of us who aren't incarcerated to think that we can only have hope in the future because I think we have to have hope right now. Hope that we have a voice now. Hope that we have, just exactly as you say, that we matter right now. Wow. Yeah, that's exactly. And so we, we do get a number of lifers in our classes. Yeah. Um, and that is the question I ask myself. When we first started going to Mabel Bassett, I, I, the question I had was, can we help bring a voice, hope, and change to someone who knows they're never leaving? And then my question to the outside world is, do they matter? Or yeah. is it only, all we care about is the recidivism rate? Right. And, you know, I have come to believe they are the ones that are going to change the atmosphere in the prison. And I've seen that, you know, I've seen several of our lifers do things like they take college classes, they become legal aides, they work in education. Um, one woman in particular, and I think periodically they really struggle with despair, honestly. Sure. But this one woman, um, Jax, who's just a dear friend, she um, went through a really difficult time because she thought she might be able to go to the parole board and they didn't even, they didn't even open up her jacket what it's called all the material mm. they didn't even go that far and she's been in for ooh, 25 years just a brilliant woman um so she in education there was a woman who was blind who had also been in our class mm. and on our last class one of our icebreakers was um what is one thing you want to accomplish and she said i want to get my ged and I said, Cody, well, why right. haven't you got, you know, we've got an edu there's an education program here. And she said, well, they said they didn't have services for me because she's blind. Not, and yeah. you have to realize in Oklahoma, too, we fund correctional about the same rate we do education. Mm. And so Which basically nothing. Right. <laughs> yeah. So prisons are thrown tons and tons of people and expected to take care of them yeah. and even, you know, help them rehabilitate, but no money. So I really think they may not have had services, but I contacted the Oklahoma Council for the Blind. They showed up the next day. Oh, terrific. And she started her classes. So she was struggling with, because she was doing everything by Audible, and um, she also knows Braille. She'd been uh, blind since she was eight years old. So Jax, the lifer who was teaching in education, taught herself Braille and started making study cards for Cody, the blind oh, woman. Wow. And then she made her an abacus and taught her how to use it because she couldn't use a calculator. And when it came time for her to take, Cody to take her GED test, she passed with some of the highest scores they'd had. You know, there was one test she didn't quite pass. Oh, she was one point off and that was because it was involved tons and tons of reading and she ran out of time. All oh, right. But, right. But it, so that's phenomenal. That's what I see. You know, Jax yeah. is making a difference there, and she's a lifer. Yeah, and she found her hope through your program, really, right? It's it certainly helped. She, yeah, and I think yeah. it becomes a community of women that have taken our class there. We try every year to have kind of a celebration of everyone who's taken our classes, and that's really powerful. And then the women who take our advanced class there uh, have the opportunity to have writing partners on the outside. And we're always looking for more writing partners, ah, if anyone's okay. listening to this. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, so Jax has a writing partner on the outside who's a professor at Southern Nazarene. And she actually comes to see Jax um, every few months and they talk on the phone. 
And so that is powerful too, because if you're in prison, the only people you talk to on the outside are volunteers who come in, except they're there, or your family. But after 10, 15, 20 years, you may not talk to your family as much anymore. Yeah, they kind of move on with their lives. and yeah. You're, yeah. But you don't just talk to ordinary people right. about ordinary things. And so our writing partner, we used to call it um, writing mentor, and then I realized most of the women who are incarcerated are better writers. Than <laughs> yeah. yeah, so who's mentoring who? <laughs> right. So now we call it writing partners, and it's just been a really powerful program to have. Oh, that's phenomenal. All right, so that kind of leads right into change, Yeah, which is already you're talking about change because you're changing certainly the women who are incarcerated, but then they're connected with people on the outside. And well, and, and we've had lives. a few of them come up for parole. And, um, you know, we chose also early on not to make it a credit class. Okay. There's classes you can take in prison that will take time off your sentence. And it's kind of complicated to get there, first of all. And second of all, the more I've thought about it, I didn't want it to be that. Right. I want them to be there because they choose to be there. Right. So that we had a sense. woman who was up for commutation. These were the 20-some people that got commutation at the end of... Uh, Governor Fallon's term and what the parole people board the parole board said after she presented her case was she was one of the most well spoken of any person they'd ever seen Yeah, and if you knew her when she started her classes you wouldn't have thought that she was in her late 60s in and out of prison a lot of her life and fairly inarticulate and then she found her voice which led to hope and change yeah (laughs) So change yeah. inside and out. And, you know, part of change, too, is they want to change the world. Um, I I honestly think if more people in Oklahoma could see that these are human beings, it would change our laws. It would change how we perceive incarceration. Yeah. You know, because yeah. we, we, we have so much implicit bias that comes from media, from growing up. You know, it's people are always so surprised when I tell them um, I've never felt unsafe. And they're like, are there guards there? Nope, there's no guards. <laughs> not in the classroom, yeah. not in the building, <laughs> at least in the prison. So. <laughs> yeah, but again, you're, you're talking with other women who are human beings. Right. You're not putting yourself in a position of being over them or superior mm-hmm. to them or dehumanizing them in some right. way. You see them as people. Well, and we don't really look like your everyday volunteers either. The majority of volunteers that come in are retired, older, white people. Yeah. <laughs> and so we have, most of our volunteers are under 30 and they're professional people. And I can't count the number of times that women have thanked us for that and said, you know, you're a professional person, you're coming away from your busy day, you know, because we have teachers, lawyers, professors, ministers, counselors, bartenders, we have all different kinds of women who volunteer for us. Is, is it all women? Yes. Okay. I wondered, so is that a regulation or is that just that you really felt like women would be more comfortable with women in the yeah. classroom? Yes, and okay. and a lot of the hurt they've experienced in their lives has come from yeah. men. And yeah. so it just gets complicated. So we just have women serving women. Yeah, and they're less likely to be triggered by, right. yeah, by women than they would be by men. 
So uh, it, it's a phenomenal program. It really is. It just I've read some of the poetry, the, uh, the three volumes that I have, um, and the women are sharing just at an incredible level. Like the, it, the thing that, that really hit me as I read their poems was how willing they were to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you don't think of prisoners, you know, if I, if I, think, if I think of um, stereotypical images Right. Of people who are incarcerated, I don't think of someone who would be willing to be vulnerable. I think of some really tough, uh, I don't know, some some tough, unfeeling person who's committed some heinous crime, and that's not, that's not the case at all. It's, it's people well, who have come from a hard place yes. and have made some bad decisions. Yes, yes. And have ended up in a place that has dehumanized them. Well, and the question, you know, I ask is, do we want them to just go back in again when they leave? Yeah. You know, and yeah. how much punishment is enough punishment? Yeah. Um, you know, I rarely have a woman tell me that she was innocent or make excuses for what she did. Um, but I also see an immense amount of trauma in nearly everyone. Sure. Um, Dr. Sharp estimated mm -hmm. that she said 90% plus of women had come from some kind of abusive background. And I, I can't remember where I read this, but she said I would have said 100%, but you can't say that. Right. But she really believes that it is close to that, and, and, and I see that too. So, you know, yeah. breaking that apart, giving them the tools to break it apart in themselves is just so powerful. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and for them to be willing to go that deep so right. that they can bring forth their voices um, is incredible. Well, and it's interesting. I think there's um, really, there's a no-nonsense that you see in prisoners, a directness, and um, I don't have a lot of time to waste. I'm mm. going to get down to this. Mm -hmm. You know, I think when we think about somebody being in therapy in the world, uh, which is what they call the world, the outside, okay. they call it the world, um, when you think of somebody being in therapy, you know, you might have a good day with your therapist, you might have a bad day, and I'm sure there's therapists who just want to tear their hair out because, like, they hear <laughs> the same thing over yeah. and over again. Yeah. And I don't see that with the women that come to our classes. They are ready to go deep, and they're willing to go deep, and it takes an immense amount of courage and, honestly, really integrity the way yeah. they do it because they will not make excuses for themselves. And then when they find out that there's a community of women in that classroom, we create sort of a family of women that w can be trusted. It's so powerful. So does that translate outside of the classroom then? Do they maintain their close ties with one another in their day-to-day -day lives? Um, it's hard to do that because they live in all different places. Oh, right. And they may or may not see that person. Okay. And I'd say it changes the atmosphere of how they are outside of the classroom, but I don't know if they necessarily maintain close friendships with those. Sometimes the they do, sometimes okay. they don't. Okay. So it's more of a, a work within that person probably and safety to do it in that place. Yeah. You, she has changed herself, so now she can be different wherever right. she is. Right, right. I mean, she is different wherever she is. Yeah. That's incredible.
So your program has, you started in Tulsa, mm -hmm. and then Mabel Bassett, right, the medium security, and then medium to max, and then um, you have, the, I want you to talk briefly about the expansion of your program. I'm sure that being a CNN hero of, the, <laughs> of 2018, one of the top 10 in the nation, which is everybody is just so proud of you for for the, well, what I you've don't done. think Oklahomans and have a lot of realization about I, what it right. is but, <laughs> but it's okay <laughs> but those who know you and have 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 uh, you know I was involved in the poetry slam uh, oh, that right, was so right. much fun um, to to hear the poetry that people were mm -hmm. bringing forth and to and the, on the theme of change and um, and that was a, a fundraiser for poetic justice and that was raising also mm -hmm. a lot of awareness I guess for right. poetic justice and that was at about the same time we learned that you were a CNN hero right. um, so that has kind of shed the light on the program but yeah. tell us where we are now where you are now yeah so I, I, I sort of kid around that the CNN award was like the Willy Wonka gold card because <laughs> it really has yeah. open doors. It yeah. used to be that if we wanted to go to a new place, we had to fight and fight and fight to get in. And, you know, we just had to, I, I just am so tenacious when it comes to the women that we work with because I will not give up, but it was such a fight. So um, one of the first ones, so we did Mabel Bassett and then we started at Eddie Warrior which is about a thousand women just uh, 30 minutes from Tulsa. Mm -hmm. And then Kate Bernard, which is about 300 women in Oklahoma City. And then I got uh, an email from uh, Kitty Turner in San Diego. And okay. two of her volunteers had presented uh, about poetic justice at the National Council for Teachers of English. They're both teachers. Oh, okay. And Katie had gone to that workshop and wanted to start in San Diego. Fabulous. And she is unbelievably determined so we have two classes there now and then my brother works with a uh, rehab in Tijuana he, he's actually in San Diego but he's been going down there for years and they have a group of women and he asked if we would do it there so we did it in Spanish there my daughter who's fluent in Spanish came luckily and um, Fabulous. there's a woman there that's still doing those she's so every single international week. now yes wow. technically and then we just got okayed for Cleveland County and Norman, and we're doing that. And I think we're going to get into the Oklahoma City Jail. It's been, I have tried for three years, every way imaginable to get in there. But it is a, a mess, and it's about to be turned over into a, a trust. Um, it's a 13-story building oh. that's falling apart and really needs to be closed. But meanwhile, there are on any given day 800 to a thousand people there oh my goodness okay so we finally got connected mm. with someone that I think we may be able to get in there and then one of our former volunteers who moved to South Carolina uh, just got trained yesterday and is going to start poetic justice in South Carolina terrific okay so I've lost track now of how many different locations that is but <laughs> it's a lot yeah. and then we have so I, I'm thinking we're going to have 14 classes a week in in the fall Oh, that's fabulous. And so the key for us, the, the same core values that we have in the classroom, we have with each other. And so we try really hard to maintain um, just relationship, the volunteers. So we have retreats a couple times a year. Um, we're all in a group meet that we all post about our class every week. And it, it's, it's so important because if, if we aren't 
in relationship with each other when we go to the class, we're not going to be effective in the class. Sure. And there's a lot of vicarious mm -hmm. trauma um, as we hear the story from the women. And I so wondered about so that. And so it's so important yeah. to take care of ourselves. Yeah. So we typically, what we try to do is get together before the class, grab a cup of coffee, talk about the class, and then after the class, spend some time just talking. I mean, debriefing is a very non-personal word, but um, it's just trying to figure out what happened and how we're going to process that. Yeah. And that's really good time together. I love doing that. Oh, that I can't even imagine some of the stories um, that you might hear in a classroom yeah. and how, yeah how that would affect you yeah. if if you took it in and didn't have a way to process it and didn't yes, have a healthy exactly. way to yeah so yeah that's that's wonderful that you see the need for that and you see that with your volunteers so that you're taking care of each other this last year yeah. we actually did a uh, wellness retreat oh really and we had a couple, um, we have on our uh, board of advisors, Pam Rice is a therapist here in town, mm -hmm. and she came and a friend of hers came and did couple sessions with us. And then we just had time just to, to be together and hang out. And I was so glad we did that. Yeah. And we did that, you know, kind of in the, the bleak of winter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that January to February where all the holidays are over and you're right. just kind of slogging on through. And then the sun. See, I told you. Right, I have and to have the, the sun. sun. <laughs> you don't have enough sunshine. That's awesome. Well, I want to put in the program notes, I want to put information if people are interested in becoming a writing partner or in yeah, learning more be about. Yeah, we'll that We'll put information in the program notes. Um, and so listeners can take a look at that. Um, are there is there a last thought that you would like to leave our listeners with um, regarding voice, hope, and change, or um, any other last thoughts? It works. That's what amazes me. Week after week, class after class, location after location, it works. It works in county, it works in long-term prison, it works in Spanish, it works in Chinese, it works in American Sign Language. And it in Braille. And in Braille, yeah. Um, the power of treating people as human beings of worth is inestimable. That's the perfect way to end. <laughs> Thank you so much, Good. Ellen. Those are the perfect <laughs> final words, yeah. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It was good. If you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, we invite you to subscribe, or better yet, become a member of the DoYouMind.life community. Members are invited to join the conversation on our discussion page, and they receive a monthly membership box intended to connect them with the monthly theme in a variety of ways. Please visit www.doyoumind.life membership to learn more. Thank you for listening.